this is David Beeson ready to plunge with you into chapter 48 of A History of England called The Austrian Throne, because that's going to be the pretext for our next round of fighting. And we really need a new round. The War of Jenkins' Ear that we talked about last time? Yeah, well, it was fine as far as it went, but basically it was just a bust-up between two nations, the waning power of Spain, the growing power of Britain, with little involvement of anyone else. Mundane, really. Fortunately, we can now get a whole new general war going, kicked off over the succession to the throne of Austria. Yep, after the Spanish succession, in which England fought, and the Polish succession, where England stayed on the sidelines, now Europe went to war over the Austrian succession. Because, with their own self-interest to push, the other nations saw no reason to leave Austrian matters to the Austrians, any more than Spanish matters to the Spanish, or Polish matters to the Poles. Especially when there was considerable wealth at stake. So, what was wrong with the Austrian succession? Well, being Austrian Archduke gave the holder one heck of a powerful position. After all, he'd be King of Hungary and King of Bohemia too. He'd have some territories in Italy and also bits and bobs, some of them pretty big bits and bobs, around southern Germany. And that's without even mentioning the Austrian Netherlands, present-day Belgium and Luxembourg. What turned all of that into a major issue was that he, the Archduke, was now a she. The Archduke Charles had died suddenly without a male heir. A woman, his daughter Maria Theresa, was going to inherit all that territory and all that authority. Obviously, that wasn't really a problem, but it was a wonderful pretext. You could say things like, A queen on the imperial Austrian throne? Inconceivable! I'm going to invade Silesia and take it over for myself. That at least was exactly what Frederick II of Prussia, later to be called Frederick the Great, said. Funnily enough, as a prince, Frederick had built himself something of a reputation as a philosopher. Many other philosophers had celebrated his accession to the throne, most notably Voltaire in France. A philosopher king, many chanted, what could possibly be more enlightened? Well, that's not quite how things worked out. His father, nicknamed the Soldier King, had built a heck of an army, but he'd never used it. It may not surprise you to learn, since isn't this just how things so often go, that as soon as Frederick mounted the throne, he put that whole philosophy kick to one side and took that fine army straight to war. The enemy he attacked was Austria. He annexed Silesia, Austria's richest province, with its mines and growing industry. You see, it was conveniently placed next to Prussia's eastern border. It needs to be said in passing that Silesia wasn't in fact either Prussian or Austrian. Most of the people living there were Poles, and it's part of Poland today. But back then, who cared about the Poles? Certainly not the Prussians or the Austrians. Prussia didn't go to war alone. Frederick went into the fighting as an ally of Austria's long-standing enemy, France. They were joined by some other German states, specifically Bavaria and Saxony, whose rulers thought that they too ought to have had a crack at the Austrian throne. But Frederick only hung around long enough to secure Silesia for himself, and then dropped out of the fighting, leaving his allies in the lurch. You don't get to be called the Great for nothing. 
you have to work hard at it. It takes dedicated study to learn to be that Machiavellian. As for the European fighting generally, most of it took place in other bits of Germany or the Low Countries. Remember, these were the convenient places for warfare, causing least damage to the main nations involved and providing plenty of opportunity for loot. Loot or worse, depending on the soldiers' appetites. As for Britain, it kept fighting the War of Jenkins' ear against the Spanish, now extended onto the American continent. A force from the British colony of Georgia invaded Spain's possession of Florida. The operation was supported by the Royal Navy, but not particularly well. British ships proved incapable of blockading the coast enough to deprive the defenders of supplies. The invasion failed. Not to be outdone, the Spanish reciprocated with their own invasion from Florida into Georgia. But with generous symmetry, they failed too. Leaving aside the disaster we heard about in our previous episode, when Admiral Vernon royally botched his attack on the Spanish settlement at Cartagena de Indias in modern Colombia, isn't this wonderful pair of tit-for-tat invasions splendidly reminiscent of other bungled joint naval and military operations between these two great nations. Just think of the Spanish Armada against England in the time of Elizabeth I and the equally unsuccessful English counter-armada the following year. Once the War of Jenkins' ear merged into the War of Austrian succession, Britain could turn its attention to the French too. In America, the fighting came to be known as King George's War, down to the present day, in honour of the second Hanoverian king, though we'll see later that he did little enough in this war to deserve any honour. In America, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, today the states of Massachusetts and Maine, sent forces against the great French fortress at Louisbourg at the mouth of the St. Lawrence River in present-day Canada, and the fortress fell to them. Meanwhile, on the other side of the globe, the French moved against British interests in India. You'll remember that out there Britain didn't have interests as a nation, but only through a private corporation, the East India Company. Answerable to its shareholders, which rather focused its attention on the bottom line, it really wasn't into spending a fortune on the military. Actually, it's quite weird it had a military at all. Most companies don't have their own private armies, but the East India Company had been granted the right to raise forces, and it had raised some. Many of the soldiers were Indian, the officers British, often seconded from the official National Army. Still, the company's forces were small, and in one of its major centres at Madras, today's Chennai, the French quickly defeated them and overran the stronghold. As well as being a blow to British interests and the companies, the event is most significant for being the moment when a young company clerk moved from his civilian job to a role in the military. He took part in several counterattacks against the French and, though they too achieved little, they allowed him to demonstrate that he was a man of unusual courage and enterprise and that he was a good leader of men. His only previous exposure to violence had been as a bit of a juvenile delinquent who'd run an extortion racket back in England, but perhaps that's not such a bad background to become an expert in the use of organised physical force to establish power over a subject people. His name was Robert Clive, and we'll be hearing a lot more about him later. 
Back in Europe, the Brits sent some troops onto the continent to fight alongside the Austrians, as they'd done in the War of Spanish Succession. But mostly, as the dominant economic power, they just subsidised allies to do the fighting for them. Britain did participate in the Battle of Dettingen in Germany, the last where a British monarch took to the field. That's if the Hanoverian George II can truly be called British. He was born in Germany, a foreigner on the British throne, like William of Orange and his own father George I before him. He learnt French, the language of diplomacy, and then German before he learnt English. As he was both Elector of Hanover and King of Great Britain, he took part in the battle as commander of two armies. As almost always happens when two armies are supposed to be fighting together, each loathes the other. Dattingen only escaped being a British defeat thanks to French errors. A measure of the real extent of the British success was that it did no more than allow them to continue a retreat they'd already started on. Even then, they still left their wounded behind. The Duc de Noailles, one of the French generals, later told his king, Louis XV, that the French were heavily indebted to the irresolution of George II. George had been accompanied by a younger son, the Duke of Cumberland. Cumberland would later prove himself really great in military actions against poorly trained and badly organised insurgent fighters, but no use whatever against real armies. After Dettingen, he ran the show for the British in the Austrian Netherlands, where they were repeatedly beaten by the French. The worst defeat was Fontenoy, or Fontenoy as we call it in England, where Cumberland came up against the best commander of the French army, Maurice of Saxony. Saxony, I hear you cry? Isn't that in Germany? Yes, you're absolutely right, and he was German. But not unusually for that period, the Germans produced a disproportionate number of the better generals, and some of them were serving in foreign forces. As for Britain, the Duke of Cumberland is a fine example of a recurring characteristic of English military history. Alongside a sprinkling of good generals, it produced a heck of a lot of absolutely lousy ones. Though that didn't stop them thinking they were outstanding. In the end, the War of Austrian Succession dragged on for eight years. One of the few unqualified successes for Britain was its naval blockade of France. That, together with the sheer cost of the war, drove the French financially to near bankruptcy and politically to the negotiating table. The concluding treaty at the Peace of Aix-la-Chapelle confirmed Maria Theresa on the throne of Austria, but with some of its best territory gone, since Prussia held on to its gains in Silesia. Britain decided to support Prussia in its claims to that territory. The decision may have been motivated by the fact that the British king's territories in Hanover were right next door to Prussia. Frederick, the Prussian king, had made a pretty shaky start as a soldier, running away from his first battle, but the general he abandoned on the field, left to his own devices, turned the battle round and won the day. That humiliating experience must have taught Frederick rather a salutary lesson because he became an outstanding military leader in his own right afterwards. All that military prowess may have rather impressed George II and made him feel it might be a smart move to stay on the right side of Prussia. After all, Prussia touched Hanoverian territory to its west just like it touched Silesia to the east. 
Backing Frederico of Silesia, however, really riled up Austria, traditionally Britain's ally, as it was France's enemy, with lasting effects, as we'll see in the next war. And there was bound to be a next war, since the peace at the end of this one left pretty much everything else just as it had been before the fighting started. The fortress at Louisbourg in Canada was handed back to the French, to the fury of the Massachusetts colonists who'd provided men and resources to take it. In the end, Britain handed them £180,000 to buy them off. The money was gratefully accepted. It wouldn't be long before the Massachusetts men would be proclaiming no taxation without representation. It may not surprise you to learn that, at this time, there were no cries of no subsidy without representation. As a trade-off for handing Louisbourg back to the French, France returned the post at Madras to the East India Company. To everyone's astonishment, France also evacuated the gains it had made in the Austrian Netherlands. They'd been won at huge cost, and by brilliant campaigning by Maurice of Saxony and one or two other talented generals. It was the French King Louis XV who absolutely wanted to hand them back, frightened that he might be in danger of extending French territory beyond its natural and defensible limits. His subjects, and Maurice of Saxony, simply couldn't understand why he insisted on giving up in the peace treaty of Aix-la-Chapelle what they'd sacrificed so much to take in the war. For a time, if a Frenchman wanted to describe something as particularly dumb, he'd say, as stupid as the peace. In other words, the treaty did what many others have done, which is bring a round of fighting to an end without addressing most of the underlying questions. A further round was inevitable, and in the not-too-distant future. As for the British, although they took part in the negotiations leading up to the treaty at X, they'd had to pull out of the campaign in the Austrian Netherlands three years earlier. Arguably, that was just as well, since it had been such a string of disasters. That, however, wasn't the reason they withdrew. Almost unbelievably, they had to pull their forces back to Britain because of a throwback to the previous century which had raised its unappealing head again. The Stuarts were back. Yes, they were going to haunt the English once more. That'll be the subject of our next episode. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 